There are seats. Um, if there's a seat with no one in it, feel free to grab that seat, and no one will stop you. Uh, it looks like we're going to be uh, we're going to be pretty full here. But um, and if you'd like to have a cigarette, please step outside. We um, okay. We can we can now start. Ninety-eight percent of the people are seated. Well, listen. Good evening. Good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the city. It is a joy to see you. My name is Eric Metaxas. I will be your host for the evening. Uh, I'm the president and founder of Socrates uh, in the city, and I have to say it is a joy to see so many of you here uh, on a rainy Saturday night at the end of June. We don't normally do events, as you know, uh, on Saturday nights, certainly not uh, on the weekends in the summer in New York City, because we know that uh, all the quality people leave the city. So... Hey, it's okay. I'm a loser also, okay? We have, a, we have a kind of a solidarity, okay? All of the losers, we're here together and we're celebrating the fact that we just can't succeed on any level. I think we're, we're together in that. There's a solidarity, there's a brotherhood of failure among Socrates' crowds. So, look, it's a little too close to the bone, Governor. You see, they're sort of uncomfortable with that because they're very... Uh... Now, of course, uh, we know that you didn't go to your country home because Governor Huckabee was in the house tonight and you wanted to see him. So thank you for, uh, for getting... I'm not sure if they're... I think they're applauding you, not country homes. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, we figured if you're going to do an event on the weekend, in the summer, in New York City, at the end of June, you better get somebody who's a big uh, draw. And so, yes, in fact, I believe we did get uh, Governor Mike Huckabee. Um, now, as most of you know, Socrates in the City takes its name from Socrates. Yeah, I think you knew that. Um, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. He didn't say it uh, in English, of course. He didn't speak a word of English. Um, not that we should judge him, okay? He was, uh, he's a foreigner, but, um, but as somebody who myself am Greek, uh, I, I like Socrates, and I like his idea that the unexamined life is not worth living. As you may know, the subtitle of these evenings is Conversations on the Examined Life. Uh, so we like to hear from speakers on the big questions of life, what we like to call life, God, and other small topics, right? So that's why we're here. Now, if you've been part of Socrates for a while, and I'm curious, if you've never been to Socrates before, would you raise your hand? Wow, look at this. Incredible. So Huckabee got you out of the house. That's great. That's just so good. I know, I know. Um, well, but as you know, usually at Socrates in the City, we make a really big effort, not just to get good speakers, but we try to get speakers uh, with an English accent. You know about that. Um, there's something about those plummy British accents that really just gets our attention, no matter how vapid the actual content is. Somehow, I mean, come on, these, these people, they think, you know, tea is a meal, right? So, but, but something about that accent, uh, it really uh, grabs us, we fall for it. So, of course, we've had, you know, Sir John Polkinghorne has been here twice, and we had Baroness uh, Caroline Cox, and just recently, a month ago, we had Rabbi Sir Jonathan Sachs, and we're, we're constantly... Uh, Getting, uh, getting folks like that, you know, if we can get somebody with a title, a sir, or you know, member of the House of Lords, that really, that really evidently impresses us. Uh, so we always try to do that, but I have to say that, you know, as we approach July 4th, um, I thought really getting a speaker with an English accent who was a member of the House of Lords, you know, might be in bad taste, really. Um, <laughs> it seemed to me that we at Socrates in the City needed to finally throw off the shackles of the mother country. 
and perhaps engage a speaker who's not only uh, not British, but who is decidedly and unrepentantly American. Uh, maybe even from a place like Arkansas. Um, and I thought, you know what, as a bonus, if we could get somebody who actually ran for the President of the United States, that would be about as American as you could get. So, um, so I wanted to get somebody who'd, who'd run for president, right? And so I tried very hard to get George McGovern, some of you guys know. Uh, Shirley Chisholm was unavailable. Uh, Ralph Nader uh, is, might be in prison. I don't know. Ralph Nader couldn't do it. I even tried to get Pat Paulson, some of you uh, will remember. Yes, you're dating yourself by the Snickers. Um, we even tried to get uh, somebody who run for president a zillion times, Joe Biden. Uh, we tried to get him, uh, but it turned out, uh, I just found out that Saturday is the day he washes his Trans Am. So he was not able to, to be with us uh, tonight. If you want to read about that, go to my website, ericmetaxas.com. I've got an article on him. He washes his Trans Am, it's kind of tacky, in the White House driveway, and it drives Obama nuts. Uh, they've got a, there's real friction between them, and washing the Trans Am on Saturdays is just... Uh, it's, it's unpleasant, but hey, Joe's Joe. He's going to do what he's going to do. Um, so it was very hard to find somebody who ran for president. And then I thought, this is ridiculous. Holy cow, we've got somebody who ran for president right here in New York City, at least when he's taping his TV show. And son of a gun, the dude is from Arkansas. And so, yes, we settled on trying to get Mike Huckabee, the most American guy we could possibly get to speak. Uh, I don't think we've ever uh, had someone speak at Socrates who's ever been on The Tonight Show. He's been on The Tonight Show. Don't applaud. Uh, he's also, perhaps more importantly, he's won the Iowa caucuses. So I think that, you know, we are very excited. Um, a lot of Iowans in the crowd, obviously. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, we've only, I think, had one other politician before. We had Chuck Colson, but he wasn't actually involved in, in politics. He'd long repented of that. Uh, we also, uh, we've also heard from Jonathan Aitken. Of course, Jonathan Aitken's British, so we were not going to try to get him again. Uh, but tonight, the first American who is a politician or was a politician or may yet be a politician, first time ever at Socrates and City. Now, most of you know the basic facts about Governor uh, Huckabee, or as I now uh, call him, Governor Huckabee. Um, but I thought uh, I'd like to share just a, a couple of facts you might not know about him. Now, you probably know that, of course, like Bill Clinton, uh, Mike Huckabee was governor of Arkansas. Um, also like Bill Clinton, Mike Huckabee was born in Hope, Arkansas. Did you know that? Now, seriously, what, what are the odds of that? Both governors of Arkansas, both presidential candidates, both born in Hope, Arkansas. It, it's kind of strange. It's like that, that Lincoln... Uh, Kennedy thing, you saw, remember, the, you remember that, that kind of creepy parallels? It gets weirder. Uh, uh, Governor Huckabee's wife, Janet, uh, was born Janet McCain. That, her, her maiden name is, is, is McCain. And it, it's getting a little spooky, is it not? I'm not making this up. And it would be really freaky if John McCain's maiden name was Huckabee, but that's not, <laughs> but it's not, it's not. But I... But as I, I sort of got down into this stuff, it began, to, it began to frighten me, these kind of weird historical parallels. It did remind me of that creepy Lincoln-Kennedy thing. And so I just wanted to ask, you know, if, if the governor didn't mind, I just want to ask him if he ever fled uh, from a theater or a warehouse after shouting, Six Semper Tyrannus. Did you ever do that? <laughs> he, I don't think he did. Um, did you ever have a secretary named Lincoln or Kennedy? No, no. Uh, were you ever elected to the U.S. presidency in a year like 1860 or 1960? No, we got three no's. Did you ever own a chimpanzee or parrot named Lee Harvey? 
All right. I, I, I'm, I'm very sorry to put you on the spot, but I, the whole thing was beginning to kind of unnerve me, all those parallels. I wanted to put my mind at ease. We can now proceed. Whew, wow, I'm so glad. Okay, where were we? Yes, fun facts about Mike Huckabee. Now, uh, Governor Huckabee has been married over 30 years to the same three women. Uh, see, I, you can joke w w with a man like this. Uh, you, you c I couldn't crack that joke if, if we had asked, uh, oh, for example, Giuliani or Gingrich to be here. But I, but that's, but I didn't ask them, you'll notice, to be here. So, um, of course, Governor Huckabee's been married to the same woman for 35 years. In fact, on May 25th, they celebrated their 35th wedding anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they have three grown children. Now, here's something. You may know this. Um, in uh, 2003, uh, the governor was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, given 10 years to live. He immediately decided to do something about it in a short order, lost over 110 pounds. Um, <laughs> inspiration on many levels. Uh, he has since completed several marathons. Um, in January 2007, I think you know this, uh, Governor Huckabee announced his candidacy for president on Meet the Press, uh, and a little birdie told me he might be making a similar kind of announcement tonight at Socrates in the City. Uh, but unfortunately, that same little birdie... Uh, told me Bernie Madoff was a really nice guy. So, I don't know, I'm just saying. Um, you might not know that Governor Huckabee was, in the early 80s, a Baptist pastor in Texarkana. Nothing British about that. Uh, and then in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, for another six years, he was elected to the presidency of the Baptist State Convention in 1989. Uh, here's something that I love. He believes in biblical inerrancy. It's not every day a candidate for president believes in biblical inerrancy, and I promise you most of them don't know what it is. Um, and let me just say, if you don't know what biblical inerrancy is, please, as a favor to me, don't run for president. Uh, Governor Huckabee has said that politics are directed by worldview, and it's absolutely impossible to separate politics from religion. I am sure that that's true, but it's very very rare to ever hear anyone say that, particularly uh, a politician. So I'm really excited uh, uh, to hear from him, to get his thoughts tonight on that subject. Uh, of course, as you have heard, he's going to give a short talk, uh, a little shorter than usual, uh, on the subject, the role of politics in America. Um, and of course, the idea of having, uh, as our speaker, somebody who ran for president and who's had to answer questions uh, hostile questions, not like he's going to get tonight, uh, from people about whether he believes in evolution. He has lived this, and so I think he's going to give us a really particularly interesting perspective on this question. Um, so Governor Huckabee will speak for uh, 15 or 20 minutes, and then we've got plenty of time uh, for Q&A, uh, at which point you'll be encouraged to step up to the mic and ask uh, the governor a question. I want to ask him um, a couple of questions, and I'll just throw these out now. I want to ask, not yet, but later, I want to ask uh, if Mitt Romney, is, is he made of real plastic or fake plastic? <laughs> Because it's driven me crazy. I want to know. I've never been up in person. And I want. And there's like the rumor he has 10 sons all named Mitt Jr. Is that right? Or maybe that's George Foreman. I don't know. But uh, I, I've got those kinds of questions completely off, off topic. Um, uh, of course, I've said way too much. Uh, let's have a warm Socrates in the city welcome for Governor Mike Huckabee. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You know, I am, uh, 
I'm not sure if you're clapping because I caught up here or because Eric left. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is one of the more unusual speeches I've ever given. The first thing I've got to do is to uh, sort of live down the introduction. And the other thing, of course, is that uh, he said I would be very brief tonight. Uh, actually, uh, we've pretty much used up all the time this evening. Thank you very much for coming. So. This is the first time, and I speak several times a week, and I've been doing it for years. I don't know that I've ever gotten up and first had to say, audience, I don't think you're a bunch of losers. <laughs> but even if he thinks you are, I, I sat there and I thought, okay, he just said the entire audience are here because they're a bunch of losers. And then he said, we've got this presidential candidate who lost. <laughs> Go figure. So I really re relate to all of you tonight. <laughs> and about these country homes. Let me explain it to you, Eric. They're all in foreclosure. That's why nobody is in a country home right now. Did you have to bring that up? I'm truly honored to be with you tonight. It is going to be a fun time for me. I hope it is for you. Uh, I look forward to really a lively exchange. And I hope that you will load up for some good tough questions, and we'll have a terrific conversation here in a few minutes with that. Uh, because of some of the breaking news things that are going on in the Middle East, uh, I told Eric I have a pretty hard depart time at 8.30 because I'm supposed to go on live at 9 tonight with Geraldo, and so as a result of that, if you know I have to slip out the door, I, it's not that I'm being rude, but Roger Ailes wouldn't understand if I said, I'm sitting around chatting with some people at the university club, that's why I'm not there. You know, and I always am trying to, try to be nice to Mr. Ailes. He is uh, now, I guess, my boss. And, uh, you know, he's very nice to me. Always tips me when I park his car every day. <laughs> this, uh, this opportunity to visit is pleasurable for me because so many times uh, it's either a speech and you leave or uh, maybe it's, it's not the kind of question and answer that's really totally wide open. And this tonight will be. And I welcome any question on any topic uh, that you wish to have. Now, I was told to talk about faith and politics. I know a lot of people say when you go to a group to speak, there are two things we'd rather you not say anything about. <laughs> Please don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics. And then they invite a guy who used to be a Baptist minister who then was a governor for 10 years and tell him not to talk about either of those two topics. Go figure. Uh, let me explain to you that if you think it's difficult for you you should have just been around the people of Arkansas when I first ran for office. Now, I haven't been a pastor in almost 20 years. But when I first ran for office, there were people who just could not get their arms around the idea that a person who ever had been in a church ministry position could possibly have any reason at all to run. And I remember the lady who came up to me in Malvern, Arkansas, a little town south of Little Rock. Howard Eddington knows where Malvern is. Maybe the only person in this room who does. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> but I was there uh, campaigning at what they have every year called the Brick Fest, which is that they celebrate their bricks that they make in Malvern. You know it's a small town when the only thing you have to celebrate is a brick. <laughs> and I'm out working the crowd, running for re-election. I was lieutenant governor at the time. And a lady came up to me and she says, I want you to know 
that I didn't vote for you. And I'll never vote for you. And I'm not voting for you this time or any other time. Because, sir, people like you should not get involved in politics. And I want you to know right now that I wouldn't vote for you if you were St. Peter. I said, lady, that's fine. Because if I were St. Peter, you wouldn't be in my district. (laughs) I I realize that seems a little unkind. But I had her pegged as one of those undecided voters that didn't really matter anyways. <laughs> I had a guy come up to me early uh, in my political life as well and ask me, was it true that I was once a Baptist pastor? I said, yes, that is correct. He said, well, let me ask you something. Are you one of those narrow-minded Baptists who think only the Baptists are going to heaven? I said, partner, I'm more narrow than that because I don't think all the Baptists are going to make it myself. <laughs> So all my life in running for office, I've had to deal with this notion that people who have any real authenticity of their faith should somehow park that at church and never, ever venture forth and speak about it in a public square. I found that remarkable. I also found it somewhat frustrating when I ran for president that the fact that I'd been an executive running a government longer than anyone else Democrat or Republican who ran for president, I rarely got asked about health care, education, infrastructure, uh, corrections and how to reform prisons, all the things that I'd been doing. I got asked questions like, do you think Jesus would run for office? (laughs) To which I told Wolf Blitzer, no, Jesus was smarter than that. (laughs) And stuff like, do you believe in evolution? Raise your hand. And ridiculous stuff that had nothing to do whatsoever with being president of the United States. And at one point in a debate up in New Hampshire, I got so frustrated, they finally said, you know, it looks like you're going to just throw at me only these religious and moral questions, that you're never going to give me one on policy of anything. And it really was exasperating because it was almost as if that there was this level of curiosity about what I'd done 20 years ago, nothing of which I was ashamed of, by the way, because as I told people that that experience of having been a pastor was one of the reasons that I felt compelled to run for office. And let me explain. Every time I listened to politicians talk about what they were going to solve the problems, I got the distinct impression that they didn't have a clue what the real problems were. And the reason I felt that was because I knew that as a pastor, every day of my life, I was touching and putting a name and a face on every social pathology that existed in our culture. You cannot name any major issue that touches human beings that I didn't look at face-to-face every single week. A teenage girl who's 14, pregnant, hadn't told her parents, guess who she talked to first? People like me. The 27-year-old who had the abortion when she was 14 or 15 because her parents pushed her into it. And she didn't really think about it, but now she's 27 and she's had a couple of kids and now that's all she can think about and she's racked with guilt. Who'd she talk to? People like me. Young couples who wanted everything their parents had, so they got themselves way overextended in debt and now their marriage is on the rocks after three years because of the financial crises that they find themselves scraping over. Guess who talked to them? And what about that elderly couple that was cutting medicine in half because they couldn't afford the full pill and they were trying to balance their health and their finances? Or the middle-aged couple who now are becoming 
parents to their, to their parents, and the roles were reversing because their parents were growing in age and lack of really capacity and dementia was beginning to set in, and, and now the, the children were having to make the authoritative decisions for their parents, and that role reversal was extremely difficult. Or what about the young couple who was standing at the graveside of their infant child? And they were looking for at least some semblance of that, especially when that child was the victim of a violent crime. I could go on, but I hope you get the point that one of the things that people don't seem to understand is that there is no profession in America or anywhere else, for that matter, in which a person touches as broad a base of the human experience as does the person who is likely the one you sort of marginalize as that religious guy who gets paid to be religious. But the truth is what he's really doing every day is touching humanity at a level that few people will ever know or see. He's there holding the hand of the person when they slip into eternity at ICU at 2 in the morning and trying to bring comfort to their family, and he's there talking to that family whose teenage son has been mortally injured in a motorcycle accident, and he's trying to counsel them through the process of organ donation so that maybe someone can, can live from his death. I'm just saying that it was frustrating to me that that part of the experience that I'd had was ignored, and it was almost like this, oh, so you're a religious guy, huh? Do some magic for us. <laughs> Say something spiritual. But as a governor, I focus most of my time not on trying to turn the state capitol dome into a steeple or dismissing the legislature and creating deacons. As bad as the legislature were, they were never as bad as deacons, I can tell you that right now. But my point of all of that is that I ran for governor to govern, and that's what I did for ten and a half years, and before that, lieutenant governor for three. And what I dealt with was education and prisons and issues like road building and health care because we ran a Medicaid program, which was the largest insurance pool in our state, dealing with state employees who had the largest block of employees in a state. By the way, people don't understand this, but governors in virtually all of the 50 states are the CEO of the largest employee pool of their state. If all the employees of Walmart and Tyson, two Arkansas-based companies, were combined, they still wouldn't have as many employees as we did at the state uh, of Arkansas level. And we had employees in all 75 counties, branch offices, if you will, 325 boards, agencies, and commissions. I, I, I could go on. My point being is that sometimes there is this almost contempt toward people of faith in our culture that is really alarming. And it's as if that if you really have genuine faith, then you really probably don't have anything else to talk about. Well, the fact is, I often said in the campaign that faith is not simply an appendage of my life. It is not... Um, a component or a compartment, it does define me. And I didn't mean that I go around every day wanting to use the government as a means of coercing people into faith because that is not faith at all. Frankly, if, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, that's your business. But I wanted you to understand that I have a value system and that it comes from somewhere, not the latest Gallup poll. That ought to be comforting to people to know that there are actually core values and principles so that my 
decisions would be fairly predictable based on the core values and the worldview that I've developed from something other than what will get me elected. And people have asked me, is it difficult being a person of faith and running for office? I said, actually, it's a lot easier because I don't have to wake up every morning and try to figure out what I need to believe today. I think it's a lot easier. Now, having said that, whether one is a person of faith or not, the, the basic idea that, that I think there is a correlation is this. We really only need one law in our culture, and that law would be the old golden rule. My mother drilled it into me when I was a little kid, and it's basically this. Do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. Now, I wanted you to stop and think about it and, and just realize that if everyone lived according to that one law, I mean, if we had that as sort of our fixed law and we truly lived it and experienced it and practiced it, no other law is needed. Because if we all lived with that law, there would be no burglary, there would be no armed robbery, there would be no murder, there would be no domestic violence, no one would beat up a spouse, no one would beat up a child, uh, nobody would be cheating each other in business, there wouldn't be any Bernie Madoffs. Uh, just think of it. I'm serious. If you treated others in the exact way you wished others would treat you, we would pretty much eliminate the need for all the other laws that we have in, in our culture and society. And every time we come up with a new law and legislate something, it really is to further define that one law in more explicit detail because somebody has decided to ignore the application of that law and we have to spell it out for them. Every law is a spelling out in great detail. I'll give you an example that's pretty stark. 1998, we had two boys, ages 11 and 12, that took high-powered rifles and went to their schoolyard in Jonesboro, Arkansas, pulled a fire alarm, and all the kids and teachers from that middle school came out into what ended up becoming a shooting gallery in a fenced-in area outside. And so as they came out and the doors were locked behind them, the two boys, ages 11 and 12, opened fire, killing five, one teacher, four students, and wounding 12. The nation was shocked, but you can't imagine the shock that we went through in my state. I was governor at the time. The day after, I went to Jonesboro. I met with the entire faculty and staff of that school. I've never been through anything like that. It was one of those days when my pastoral skills and past uh, served me well. I went to the hospital. I visited with every one of the survivors. And then things started sinking into us all. Arkansas law, dealing with juveniles, was such that we could adjudicate those two young men, but at the age of 18, we had to release them because we had no laws on our books that dealt with what do you do with an 11-year-old who commits mass murder. And you know why? Because in the 160-year history of our state, it had never occurred to anyone that an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old would open fire with high-powered rifles on a schoolyard and indiscriminately kill students and teachers. We never thought of that. And so, yeah, we had ways to deal with juveniles, but we dealt with them as juveniles, and when they became of majority age, they were considered able to get back into society. People were outraged. What do you mean those kids are going to be let go when they're 18? That was the law. Yeah, we fixed it. We changed it. We went to what many states do now as a blended sentence. I only point that story out to remind you 
that the law that we passed had to explicitly define what happens if a 10, an 11, or a 12-year-old commits mass murder of his fellow students and a teacher because we had never thought of that before. If we just said we're all going to live under the law, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, we'd had it covered. All of our law is essentially a further definition of treating each other with some level of decency and respect. And it becomes the single most important thing we do. Now, where did I come up with that, that idea of doing unto others? Well, religion, if you will. Specifically, it's words of Jesus. Now, you don't have to believe in Jesus to believe that's a pretty good idea. That's fine. My point is that for me that that gives some sense of the compass pointing north if there are things that I believe are fundamentally always right and things that are fundamentally wrong and therefore you can live within the context of those and govern between the ditches. That makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is that we would have no markings for navigation whatsoever and the traffic would go in all directions at all times according to the whims of the drivers who happen to be driving. That doesn't make sense. I know it's a lot like New York City streets. I get that. But it doesn't make a lot of sense that it would be a rational way to approach the governing. We have a social contract in America called the law, and we are a people of law. We pass laws that we decide we all can live with better than we can live without them, and that's how we function. But the basis of those laws are rooted in something other than just our basic whims, and that's where our traditions and our understanding of what's right and wrong come from and the fact is, I came to realize as a governor that the people who wanted lower taxes and less government, what they really wanted, they didn't maybe understand to articulate it, what they really wanted was a greater distinction of character in the lives of the citizens because the truth is there is a direct correlation between the character of the citizens being governed and the amount of govern governing that is necessary. Why do we have as much government as we do? I'll tell you, because people have tried to break the rules. Every bit of government we've created has been created to try to corral people into a behavior that they've chosen not to live within. That's why we have cops on the street, and the more we have, it's an in indication of the fact that many people have decided to break the law. If everyone lived perfectly within the law, you would really only need one cop, and that's just to check the people who were coming into town who weren't part of this social contract that said we don't do these things to each other. We could empty our jails if everybody lived uh, properly toward each other. The reason we have prisons that are overcrowded is because we've defined things that we've decided are wrong, we've created consequences for them, and we then must adjudicate and incarcerate the people uh, who violate that contract. If we want less government, if we want lower taxes, we don't just slash the budget we raise the character of the people who live within our culture so that it is not necessary for some external force called government to tell them what they can and cannot do because that comes about by the best government of all. And I'll pause at this and start answering your questions because what I want to say is that the best government we'll ever have is not the government we elect. Some of you certainly are agreeing with that. <laughs> No, the best government we'll ever have is the government of self-government, the government that comes from within our own hearts when we do what is right because our conscience guides us and our sense of right and wrong dictate that to us 
And more often than not, God is involved, whether a person is Muslim, Jewish, Christian, or maybe something even different. But there is a sense that, hey, you know what? I'm not alone. Somebody's watching. I'm going to be accountable for the way I live. And if we believe that, it's not just if I don't get caught, it isn't wrong. It's even if I don't get caught, it's still wrong because it's wrong within the context of a larger principle of what is right and what is wrong. So what's the best government of all? Is it Democrat or Republican? It is neither. Well, I find that hard to say. It's probably... (laughs) The best government of all is self-government. When people live according to a moral code that makes it unnecessary for someone else to shepherd their behavior because they're taking care of it themselves. That should be our goal. Well, I've got a lot of other things to say, but it's question and answer time, so I'm looking forward to taking yours. And I think um, microphones... I think, Eric, you wanted to go to the microphone? Okay. Thank you, Governor Huckabee. Uh, As you know, if you want to ask a question, you have to go to the microphone. And as you know, if you come to Socrates and City regularly, uh, I really, uh, I mean to threaten you when I say (laughs) that the questions must be in the form of a question. Okay? That's very important. We don't have a ton of time. Uh, Please ask your question crisply, 14 syllables or less, and then move on because we want to get to as many questions as possible. Please uh, do stick to that, and if you don't, I'll get you, okay? So thank you. Governor, I'm impressed by your comments that self-government is better than our national government. I'm concerned about the tendency of the Congress to legislate huge bailouts under circumstances in which they shouldn't be necessary at all. My understanding is that banks presently can take my deposits and gamble with the deposits, invest the deposits as they wish. If they win, they get huge bonuses. If they lose, they can say FDIC will protect the losses. And this all flows from something called the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which prohibited banks from gambling with your and my deposits. Do you understand this problem, and couldn't we avoid all the problems we're now having with TARP and, and deficits and so on if we just reinstated what they did in 1933 and said banks can't gamble with depositors' money. Well, first of all, let me say that I oppose all of the bailouts because I think they're unconstitutional on their face. It is not the place of the federal government to pick winners and losers in the marketplace. That's why we have a marketplace. People take risk. They might win. They might lose. If you guarantee that people can't lose uh, because they are of a certain size, then what you've done is you guarantee other people will lose. But let me speak it to a, in a broader way. I, I was opposed to the TARP plan. I know there were a lot of my fellow Republicans in whom I am extraordinarily disappointed, especially the ones who call themselves such staunch conservatives and claim that I wasn't because many of them rung, you know, were out there wringing their hands and saying, well, we have no choice. Of course we had a choice. And what we should never have done 
is to have used taxpayer monies of people who are paying their bills to pay for people who had made risky, reckless decisions and lost. And I'll take it a step further. Uh, let me just, uh, and I'll, I'll conclude with this because I could go on a while and I know that's not the point. We've got a long line of people. When you talk about the banks gambling, it's not just the banks gambling. What has happened in the financial community is that people quit investing in actual products and services, things of tangible value. And the marketplace began to be more and more about betting on the future value of what a product or service would be worth. And the money was made not on the actual value of what this product was or this service was, but it was based on its future potential value. And the idea was we're going to gamble and bet that it's going to be worth something. We'll make our money and sell it before it comes to us. It was a game of musical chairs without the music or the chairs. <laughs> and and the, it was destined to collapse. And we should have seen this. It was, I called it that Wall Street had become Las Vegas East. It was a gambling enterprise. It was just that it wasn't honest about what it was doing. And the real tragedy is that in Las Vegas, if you lose, you pay your own debt or your legs get broken. <laughs> in the marketplace, what has started to happen is if you, you know, lose, then the other people, the taxpayers are supposed to pay, and they get their legs broken on top of it. So what's, that, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but certainly the idea that the government is going to now own car companies and banks and insurance companies. Uh, look, I understand there are huge consequences, and there could be rippling effects of the economy, but can I ask you, can there be any greater effect to the economy of our children and grandchildren than to so load them down with a debt that's unbelievably impossible to pay, that while we may have escaped some pain for our own generation who made the mistakes, we've simply pushed it off on our kids. My parents' generation is often called the greatest generation. And why do we call them that? Because they sacrificed their own comfort and, in fact, their own lives so their kids would have a better life than they were going to have. What we've done is the polar opposite. We've sacrificed our kids so that we wouldn't have to experience the pain of our avarice, greed, and reckless behavior. And that's a sad thing. It's in. Yes. Governor Harper-Goodby, thank you for coming. And I can proudly say I actually voted for you. And I hope I to do so. I can proudly say that you were and I hope very to do so again. to do that. <laughs> I hope to do so again. Um, if our current president um, would give every candidate that ran uh, five minutes of their time and would actually listen to that candidate, such as yourself, um, what would your advice be to our current president? And my follow-on question is, while you're answering that, would you mind signing my book? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on up here. Yeah. I'm, I'm real capable. I can sign and speak at the same time. <laughs> that was one of the most gratuitous things I've ever seen in my life, and I'm happy to do it. <laughs> At least you asked me to sign my book and not someone else's, so <laughs> thank you very much. If I had five minutes, one of the things that I would say to the president was rather than bailing out people who had been irresponsible, let's restructure the tax code in America. I am a strong advocate for something known as the fair tax developed by some of the top economists in the country, people from MIT, Harvard, Boston University. The essence of it is it's a consumption tax you pay at the point of retail only when you buy something, you pay it one time. It eliminates all 
taxes on every form of productivity and income. You wouldn't have taxes on corporate income or personal income, inheritance, capital gains, savings, um, nothing in which things are produced. Why? Because what you reward, you get more of. What you penalize, you get less of. If you want a strong economy, you do not penalize the very things that create a strong economy, which is investment, savings, um, creation of jobs through the starting of a company, um, and the movement of goods and services. That, that's what builds an economy. When you punish that, you're going to get less of it. When you reward the reckless behavior, which is now what we're doing, you're going to get more of it. So who's going to pay for the increased reckless behavior? It makes no sense to me. Uh, one of the great things about it, we would eliminate the IRS and all the 67,000 pages of tax code that go with it, and people in business would make business decisions, not tax decisions. There are many of you in this room who are business owners and operators, some of you maybe in large businesses, many of you in small business, and I don't have to tell you that your cost of compliance is one of the biggest issues you face, paying accountants and lawyers to just help guide you through the maze of the tax code, and many of the decisions that you make in business have nothing to do with inventory, employees, benefits, product movement. It has to do with protecting yourself within the tax code. You ought to make business decisions, not tax decisions. And if we had the consumption tax, everybody has skin in the game. Now, the big deal about it is that the people who currently don't pay taxes like you do, prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers, and illegals, would be paying taxes because they still buy things in the retail. So it would transform. If you haven't read the Fair Tax book by Congressman John Linder, I recommend it. Our, actually, there's a chapter in my book on the Fair Tax, which is a summary of it, and I would really highly recommend that. Okay. Yes, next question. Hello. I did vote for you as well in the primaries, Thank and you. I am Southern. But I wanted to ask, uh, never have we seen the lines blurred between political influence and bank regulatory activities. Is there something that can be done about that? The answer to that is uh, it's called an election, and we better hope we change some seats in the Congress next year because if we don't and put the brakes on this runaway trend toward government uh, control, it's going to be very difficult for us to undo the damage. And I'll be – I'm trying not to be partisan or overly political in what I say. I'm truly not because I don't think Republicans are right all the time. I don't think Democrats are wrong all the time. I think they're wrong most of the time, but not all the time. <laughs> but, but I honestly just fear that we are making so many fundamental changes to the infrastructure of our nation's uh, function as our government relates. The, the Sunday that I heard that President Obama had actually fired Rick Wagoner as the CEO of GM, that was a, an epiphany for me. And I thought, I cannot believe that the President of the United States believes that not only is it his prerogative, but that it, he even has the realm of right to get to the level of picking the CEO of a private company. I don't care what the circumstances are. And that was, to me, a Rubicon we crossed. I'm not sure we can ever undo. But we need to, and it would be great to get rid of a lot of people in Congress. By the way, to tell you what a sort of a out-there guy I am, I wish that just like we have term limits on the executive branch, I think we need term limits on the legislative branch and that people couldn't stay there for their whole lives.
Yes. Governor, what is the future of the Republican Party? And number two, any rising star on the horizon to win back the White House in 2012? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let me answer, because I'm asked that question a lot about the future of the Republican Party, and I, I'm really pretty clear in saying to people that if you want to know how to lose, look at our past over the previous 35 years or so, and here's how we can lose. Let's not stand for anything. Let's keep talking about how that we don't want to offend anybody by taking a stand, because that might run some people off. And I'll tell you what happens. Every single election cycle in which we do that, we lose. Every last one of them, dating back to 1976. Every election cycle in which our candidate articulates a clear and unapologetically conservative message, we win. Now, you would think that we would stop listening to the people on the far left who are giving us advice on how to rebuild the Republican Party. No offense, James Carville, but you're not the guy I'm really listening to on how we can do a better job. I don't think conservatism is dead. Uh, I believe that it's simply been abandoned by the people who were supposedly the practitioners of it. Uh, classic conservatism believes that less government is better than more lower taxes are better than higher taxes, that if you do have government, it should be as local as possible so it can be as close to the people being governed as is necessary, and that uh, it also protects us from having too much government centralized in one place. Therefore, the founders articulated that in the Tenth Amendment so that you would disperse that power out to the states, and very little would be left to the federal government except to protect our borders, keep us safe, and, you know, have some type of infrastructure for commerce. Other than that, they're supposed to basically go up there, uh, make a few laws, and we would elect a few people to run for Congress, some people that we didn't think we'd miss very much from our hometowns, and uh, <laughs> then they'd come home, and th it wouldn't be this big a deal. And boy, has that ever changed. Our founders would not recognize the Congress as it exists today. And... So I, I just believe the future of the party is in getting back to, oh, by the way, another couple of things that the conservative, I think, message would be is an unapologetic, strong America with strong national defense. And it would also be unapologetically an adherence uh, to the traditional values of the definition of marriage and the sanctity of human life. We do not lose when we embrace those things. I know that there are people who say that those are losing propositions, I find that to be nonsense because the candidates who take that position win. And if you want to look at something really interesting, it was the Democrats who took pro-life and pro-traditional value positions that won the congressional elections that gave them the majority. When the Democrats were running conservatives that articulated a more conservative message than the Republicans, the Democrats won. Look at Heath Shuler in North Carolina. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but up in Mississippi, a race we clearly should have won. We lost it because the Democrats, over and over, when the Democrats run as if they're conservatives, that's when they take seats away from us. Sorry, I could have gone. Kevin, before you go, just want to let the folks at the back of the line know we probably won't get to you. We'll try at 8.05, we have to end the question. So if any of you has true or false Maybe Governor, this is where we go to the raise your hand yeah, questions, yeah, yeah. you know. Governor, I just wanted to say I became a big fan of yours when Leslie Carranza brought me to the National Camp, uh, Christian Coalition. Um, 
convention back, I think it was 96, and you spoke? We were talking about that earlier, yeah. I was very impressed by that. You Thank you. You caught me. I just wanted to ask you, relative to the idea of faith in politics, it does seem that um, through the idea of separation of church and state, most, pe most people of faith have sort of acquiesced to the idea that they should not have a, a, a faith vote or a faith voice in the government, and as a result, we've ended up with uh, secular humanism being the de facto uh, faith of this country. No, I think that's exactly right. I would go so far as to say that uh, it's a great misunderstanding when people say, uh, well, you know, the Constitution says there ought to be separation of church and state. I said, oh, really? Well, could you show that to me? And I always ask them to do that because the truth is it's not in the Constitution. It is not constitutional language. It is not in the Bill of Rights. The phrase itself comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association in 1814 to quell a rumor that the government was getting ready to establish, I think at that time, the Anglican Church as the official U.S. church. And that made the Baptists really ticked off. Baptists, <laughs> by the way, let me just tell you, as a Baptist, it doesn't take a whole lot to tick off the Baptists, but <laughs> here they were, they were all in an uproar, so they wrote and said, Mr. President, is this true? Are we about to have this state church? And he wrote back and said, absolutely not. Uh, the, the whole point of our government is that people are free to worship any the way they want to, and the government can't get involved because there is a wall of separation between the church and the state. It was the polar opposite of the way it's being translated today. It was not to say that the church shouldn't speak to the government. It was to say that the church is perfectly free to speak to the government, but the government ought to keep its mouth shut as opposed to how the church operates. By the way, most people, I, I wonder if they ever took ninth grade civics. The Bill of Rights does nothing to prohibit any citizen and or his rights. The entire body of the Bill of Rights puts prohibitions and restrictions on government in order to liberate people. It never, not one of them, binds the people. It binds the government from the people and protects them. Read it again. Go home tonight and remind yourself that our founders were so afraid of government that they wrote the Bill of Rights to ensure that government couldn't do some things, not that people couldn't do some things. We've forgotten that. That's so simple. Anyway, I'll move on. Good evening, Governor. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, even though I'm an accountant, I still like your fair tax idea. <laughs> By the way, let me just re respond to that. My CPA, I thought he would hate it. You know what he told me? He said, I love it, and I was somewhat surprised. He said, I'll tell you why. He said, because I would rather use my skills and abilities as an accountant to help people make money than to sit around and wade through this tax code and tell them how much they owe to the government because I'd be a lot more popular if I could use my skills to help people use their money wisely than to simply write a check to the government. So, you know, Absolutely. it's not totally surprising, but thank you for affirming that. Yes, <laughs> um, but uh, sticking with uh, faith and politics, um, as a person of faith that takes the Older Covenant and Newer Covenant seriously, um, I see that Israel plays a large part throughout uh, the biblical history. Um, and we see so much of uh, the world and nations turning against Israel and our new uh, government wanting to make it a two-state um, idea and nation. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and uh, what can we do as people of faith to address that? I have to be very careful so that it does not come across that a policy that I would have regarding Israel would be based on trying to impose a theological understanding of the 
biblical boundaries. So, so let me just say on the front end that what I'm about to say is based to me on the greater level of common sense uh, that is universally true regardless of one's position on the spiritual nature of Israel. Uh, last August, I made my 10th trip there. I planned to go back in January. So I've been there, and I've been to virtually every country in the Middle East, including Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, Iraq, Afghanistan, been all through that region. The United States should not abandon Israel, and I fear that we are on the brink of doing it. And I further will tell you that we have not merely an organizational relationship with Israel, we have an organic relationship with Israel. It is the only body of government in the entire Middle East that most closely reflects our understanding of the nature of government. It is a uh, freedom, liberty-loving process of government in which the people ultimately still have rule. And the two-state solution, from my perspective, and I know I'm a very small minority to say this, I understand the official Republican doctrine, which I personally think is absurd. The two-state solution makes no sense to me for this reason. Apply that doctrine in our country and ask, would there ever be a moment in America when the people of our country would accept having two sovereign governments overseeing the same piece of real estate? And the answer is not no, but heck no. Of course we wouldn't. We would never say if we got into a border dispute with Canada that, well, you can have part of Buffalo, New York, and we'll have part of it. In fact, we'll both have the same parts, and we'll just operate somehow in this nebulous world of, of trying to get along, even though if the Canadians, which they're nice people, but if they turned mean on us and said that they didn't believe that we should exist and they'd like to exterminate every last one of us. Look, folks, you can't have a tiny little piece of land lived in by the Israelis surrounded by people who don't even think they should exist and would love to destroy every last breathing one of them. And given the history that people have attempted to do it, it's not like it's without precedent. You must give them land and you must give them secure borders. We expect and accept nothing less for ourselves why would we expect or accept anything less for them? And this idea that we're going to push them into giving up land for peace, they will end up losing the land but not gaining peace, and they will end up losing what little peace they have, and it's absurd. So uh, I, that position may cook me uh, on a policy level because I understand that is not the mainstream. But I'm tired of the mainstream because it hasn't worked, and it won't work. So... Tonight, I think you said something like this, uh, that to change the, uh, or to solve the problems we face, we have to change the character of the people within our culture. Now, that strikes me as a sort of Socratic or abstract statement, and I'm also concerned with it because I wonder, do we have a culture that allows us to change the character of the people? so that the problems can be solved. Do you follow my reasoning, or am I being no, too I, abstract? No, I think I do, and if I answer it and don't sort of respond to the question, feel free to follow up. Here's how that happens. One of the reasons that I believe that people of faith should be involved in politics is because, as I understand the purpose of what faith does in our life, it makes us salt, it makes us light. Salt is a preservative. 
Light is an illuminator. Uh, salt does m its best work when there is decay taking place. Light uh, does its best work when there's utter darkness. Um, people of faith ought to be looking at that which is decaying and saying, how can we apply faith, the integrity of what's right and wrong, to everything from fashion to advertising to movies to poetry to music? Uh, what we act like is that faith is a wonderful thing as long as you keep it in church. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The whole point of salt is not to stay in the box. It's to be placed on the fish when it comes out of the water so that it might be preserved, so that it might be salvaged. And anything that is putrefying needs the salt to keep it from uh, a rapid form of decay. Anything that's dark needs the light so that those in it don't stumble. And what I would say is that the most important role that a person of true faith has is not to say, I'm really, really a person of faith in my church, but I, I try not to you know, push that when I get away. Well, that's like saying I, I have a boat, but I only keep it in a warehouse. I never put it in the water because, you know, might get dirty in the water, might get a hole knocked in it, might, uh, might run over something. Of course, that's the whole point of the boat is to be in the water, not the warehouse. So I, I would further out the analogy by saying that boats are to be in the water, but they're not to be full of the water. If they're not in the water, they're not much of a boat. But if they're full of water, they're not much of a boat either. And a person of faith, if he's not in the world, isn't really being much of a person of faith. But if he's so full of the world that he's unrecognizable from the world, he's not much of a person of faith either. So should people be involved in every arena of life? That's the point. So I, I don't know if that answers it or not, but that's how we transform our culture, by being what we should have been all along. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Good evening, Governor. Um, forgive me, I have a cold. <laughs> well, that's why we have the microphone yeah. back there. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> a hug from afar. <laughs> but as you believe that you cannot separate your faith-based worldview from the practice of politics, I also believe that I can't separate my faith-based worldview from the practice of medicine. As a pastor, you've seen um, the consequences of life choices made by um, your your community mm -hmm. as a reflection of their spiritual lives. And as a gynecologist, I've seen the consequences of sexual choices that have been a reflection of my patient's spiritual lives. Um, and I need to have the ability or the protection of my rights to be able to share with my patients to treat their body as God's temple um, and to take care of their bodies. Now, how would you recommend that we mobilize the lay community who are just so preoccupied with access to health care, as well as mobilizing the medical community who are just overloaded with trying to keep up with that pace to protect such rights as the right of conscience for physicians. First of all, can I commend you for being a person? Oh. And I want to say this with all my heart. You have just, perhaps unintentionally because you were just standing in line, you just validated what I said about salt and light. You have absolutely affirmed the importance of people of faith being in the, the realm of every area of society in which people are struggling with tough choices and as a medical practitioner and specifically a gynecologist dealing with those issues uh, as a believer. I, I just want to say you just brilliantly and beautifully um, oh, wow. It's totally God. It. His, his grace has been really um, just 
providing abundance here in the city to be able to minister well, to people. Well, thank you for, for your courage right. and, and for recognizing that it was or it is your convictions that you take to work with you and you don't leave them at the door of your church when you, when you leave, that it's part of who you are. And that's one of the reasons that it becomes so important that we recognize that the First Amendment protects you. It does not give the government the authority to come and tell you how your faith can be practiced in your daily walk. It, it prohibits the government from involving itself in your personal uh, expression of faith. It does not prohibit you from expressing that. Um, and again, there, we could talk a long time about it, but I would hope that you will continue and, and make your voice heard, but also what you've just described is the reason that it's so important that we don't punish people, for example, who won't perform elective abortions mm -hmm. uh, because there are hospitals in which if they don't do it, uh, they risk all f uh, funding. And that, that kind of coercion to do something that people have a choice against is, is one of the things that we need to be very watchful of. Forgive me for asking a follow-up question, but just how do we address then the Obama administration that is trying to figure out whether or not to protect that sort of right? I, I think calmly but courageously, and it bothers me very much that the Obama administration has been pushing for a very aggressive approach to unlimited abortion. Now, they use the words like, let's see if we can reduce it. Well, we know some things that will reduce it. For example, parental notification laws, uh, parental consent. Uh, that can reduce teenage abortion by as much as 70%. Those are proven uh, facts. But if the Obama administration is adamantly opposed to any type of controls or restrictions, then I believe that they have proven that they're not serious and sincere about wanting to reduce the number of abortions. And the stunning thing, 50 million abortions since 1973. In a country of 300 million people, 50 million unborn children. Uh, by the way, 93% of all abortions in America are performed strictly for elective reasons. There's 4% uh, because of medical issues with the mother, 3% medical issues uh, with the child. There's less than one half of 1% that are the result of rape or incest. So when you hear that, what about the exceptions? You know, we can argue that. That's a whole other discussion. I believe in life, but let, let's say that that's the argument. 93% of the abortions have nothing to do with, with those issues. I know we need to move along. We only have time for one question, maybe two, if it's very quick, and I apologize. <laughs> Governor Huckabee, I am a chaplain in transportation, and I have seen, I appreciate so much your living out what you're exhorting us to in terms of your Christian faith and putting it into action in politics. I have seen so much in, in law of the oppression of the values at, that you are exhorting us in terms of uh, self-government and respect and those kind of things. And so what I'm asking you is, um, What's happening, do you see, with the church, which I think has weakened in terms of our standing courageously, and how do you see us um, going forward in terms of how we witness to the importance of this in our government and in our life here in the U.S.? 
there are many people who are very pessimistic and speak only in terms of the gloom and doom, and this is, you know, the end. And, and I'm sorry, I don't accept that. First of all, if it is, quote, near the end, I've heard people say, well, I think this is the end time, so there's no point. No, that's all the more point. Yes. <laughs> if it's the end time, then we really ought to be busy because, yeah. you know, if Jesus is about <laughs> to show up, I want him to find me busy, not sitting down in the lazy <laughs> boy saying, well, hey, I thought you were coming. I didn't want to be doing anything. I mean, that, that's nonsense to me. But I don't buy into that idea that, that our point is to just give up and, and quit. You know, I read the back of the book, and we win. I mean, I don't know that's if you right. know this or not, Woo! but it turns out okay when it's all over. Now, I know that's an offensive statement to some, and I apologize. No, actually, I don't. It's true. So um, <laughs> here's what I would, I would try to suggest, that never does it matter more than it matters now for us to be true to our faith. When I was speaking a moment ago about salt and light, you know, salt isn't that important when nothing is putrefying, but when everything is, salt really becomes valuable. When, the, when there's a well-lit room, having a flashlight doesn't really matter a whole lot, but when it's utter darkness, even a tiny, flickering little pin light matters. And so when people act like there's nothing I can do, I'm too small, I'm insignificant, no, in a time like this, everybody matters a lot more than they've ever mattered. And what it may do is to force people to take a stand and to either get in or just give up. I, I want to be in the get in crowd, not the give up crowd. And so I refuse to just yield over to the pessimism of there's nothing we can do. This is, you know, that we're going to be overwhelmed and we're going to be defeated. Where do we get that stuff? Uh, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. I just happen to believe that as a, as a believer. And again, you don't have to accept my my spiritual views, uh, look at it as a point of patriotism and believe it that Amen. way then. So thank you. Thank you. Governor. All right. It's great to see you, Governor. Um, you spoke earlier about the contempt that many people have for those who have religious convictions and then choose to act on them. So insanely, yeah. as some people seem to think. Um, so many people who are outside the Christian faith see us as a people politically who have merely wanted to trample on the rights of individuals. And they see uh, the Republican Party as a bunch of capitalists that want to protect our money and that want to take individual rights away from people. How can we do a better job as Christians of being the body of Christ and not just being seen as people who are interested in protecting our own interests, but really furthering the best for society? It's a great question. And let me respond that by saying, first of all, words matter, and secondly, our spirit matters. We can say the right words and do it in the wrong spirit, and we will have a negative effect. Or we can have the right spirit and the wrong convictions and words, and we will not be successful. Uh, words and attitude and spirit go hand in hand, and they cannot be separated. And let me give you an example. When I was a debater in high school and college, one of the things I learned was that the winning of the debate had more to do with whoever got to define the terms and whoever framed the debate more so than who actually debated more effectively because the debate was more often won or lost by the framing of the issue itself and the defining of the terms that one used in the course of the debate. That's, that's where it ha In other words, it's on the preparation, not the presentation in. I would say that because uh, we, we tend to forget that our words matter. Rather than just say as conservatives, we want to cut taxes, we ought to talk about empowering families and empowering workers. 
And that, that just, you know, that, that's a universal message. Who doesn't want workers to be empowered? Who doesn't want a family to be empowered? So I could give you a lot of examples, but just understand the, the way that we articulate the message is important. Using words that speak to the recipient of the words, not just that sort of ring out our Republican mantra, our conservative mantra. But the second thing, and this is a part that really concerns me a lot, the spirit in which we convey these things matter a lot. And I've got a lot of Republican friends who relish the idea of yelling and screaming and getting into shouting matches with people on the other side of the political spectrum. And, and you know what? They get cheered by their own crowd, but they win no converts. In fact, they make the, the hostility and the enmity even stronger. And I'm not sure that that's – I don't know what that's supposed to do for us. I, I could come into a Republican crowd and whip them into a frenzy by telling them – and ridiculing every liberal. And, and, you know, I understand sometimes we can say some things in good humor and tongue-in-cheek, but when the tongue is not in our cheek and the knife is in our hand, it's different, and I think we all know the difference. And I personally think that we are not served well by the people who um, maybe say the right things, but they say it with such... Uh, let me put it... Uh, this is the best way I can put it. I, I knew people in church who believed in the doctrine of hell, and they that's fine. But the problem was they acted like they were really, really glad that some people were going, and they were even happier that they were going to name the ones that were going. And I always wanted, I, you know, I never saw Jesus saying, there's a hell, and I'm so glad you and you and you and you are going to it. Hot dog. I'm thrilled. It was like there's a hell, and it breaks my heart that some of you may end up there because that's not where you were supposed to be. That's the spirit. And I don't see that sometimes. So... Words and spirit, we convey that, and I think it makes a huge difference. I'd, I'd love to be here all night, but I can't, so thank you, and God bless you. Enjoy getting to be here.